Welcome to the AIER Standard, a production of the American Institute for Economic Research. I'm your host, Ethan Yang, and today's guest, Matthew Clark, is an attorney at the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty, and he is bringing, he's currently bringing a lawsuit uh, to ret- retrieve compensation from the state of Alabama uh, for its disastrous lockdown policies that his client asserts uh, have, have done nothing to stop the virus, but have done everything to put small businesses out of business and harm everyday Americans. Matthew, it's great to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. I uh, love what AIER does, and uh, honored that you have uh, ha- have me with you today. Yeah, of course. And the the work that you're doing is obviously uh, very meaningful to everyday Americans, and especially uh, to people like us who have really uh, spent the past two years uh, studying these lockdowns really intensely and uh, studying whether or not they work, and as well as the economic consequences, which I hope we can get in today. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, you know, COVID was absolutely. Uh, unprecedented through a curveball at a lot of people. And, and to a certain extent, you got to show folks a little bit of grace for not knowing what to do right off the bat. But even in an emergency, there are certain cardinal rules that you have to follow, including uh, separation of powers and, and other issues. And that, uh, I think, is what a lot of people were concerned about during and after the pandemic. Of course, and that's certainly a principle that we shall abide by. Uh, before we get into your client's story and a little bit of what what your center is doing. I'd like to know a little bit more about uh, the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. I'm sure it's a very important organization. I think our viewers should know a little bit more about. Well, well thank you. So we are a uh, nonprofit conservative public interest firm, and we kind of have three core pillars that guides what we do. Uh, the first is limited government. You know, we're, uh, we're not anarchists, but we do believe that government serves a legitimate purpose. But uh, needs to stay in its lane, stay what, uh, stay doing what it was designed to do. And because of that, whenever there are major constitutional issues going on, um, either in the state of Alabama or in the federal system that would have a direct effect on Alabama, we take an interest. We try to stick up for the Constitution and making sure that uh, if government is going to expand or do things differently, that it does it properly so that there's no change by usurpation. Um, I think George Washington said in his farewell address, if uh, the people find the distribution of powers to be undesirable in any way, then let them amend it, but let them do it through the means the Constitution uh, prescribes. Because in the one instance, this may seem like the instrument of the good, the precedent that says will always overbalance um, in, in permanent evil. It's a customary weapon by which free governments are destroyed. All right, that, I, I paraphrase that a little bit, but that's the essence of what Washington said. So we believe that very firmly. And so... Um, Sticking up for both the federal and state constitutions is a big part of what we do. Uh, second is free markets. Um, so we definitely do believe that capitalism is better than socialism. We do believe that a lot of uh, the problems that are hot button political issues right now are better solved by the market than by the government. So uh, we want to do what we can to keep the government off the backs of businesses. Uh, for that reason, last year we challenged uh, the Biden administration's OSHA vaccine mandate. And we were one of the 15 applicants that asked the U.S. Supreme Court to step in. And, and fortunately, they did. And, you know, the, the, the court's decision saved uh, probably millions of jobs across the country. And then mm. finally, uh, we, we believe in strong families. We, we do believe in traditional Judeo-Christian values. We think that, you know, the family is a building block of society. And so we want to do what we can to promote that. So limited government, free markets, strong families, those are kind of the three pillars that uh, support what we do. Mm. And I've worked with uh, similar organizations before that basically uh, take very qualified lawyers and allow them to help little people, you know, people who can't afford uh, these legal services. Uh, I'm assuming your organization is structured similarly, right? You predominantly uh, help 
normal people who can't afford the big shot lawyers that can, you know, litigate for millions of dollars, but you're, you're helping normal people uh, fight back against a government overreach. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, the, you're, you're right. There, there is a huge demand for public interest lawyers out there. There are a lot of times where people wind up getting their civil rights violated, but it's unfortunately, it's often only the people with deep pockets that can afford to um, pay the lawyers to fight back if we were going to do this stuff for profit. So we're a nonprofit. We, we do help primarily um, average citizens that are having their civil rights violated, and we are funded completely by the generosity of donors. Mm. And also, this is sort of a more of an observation, but it seems like, you know, the, the first public interest organization, I'm sure most people would think of is groups like the ACLU, but they were not present, at least from what I was for, at least what I saw uh, during the lockdowns. Right. They were not uh, litigating for people's civil rights. In fact, I think some of them, the ACLU might have been I think they're actually supporting um, mass mandates, you know, at different schools and whatnot. So it seems like, you know, the, the whole civil rights atmosphere um, at least from where it started to where it is, has really shifted in a different direction. And so you're probably, I would assume that your organization is really filling that gap of where groups like the ACLU used to stand, but now sort of stand somewhere else. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, the ACLU is a, a curious case because they initially held themselves out as more of a libertarian organization. We just want to stand for civil liberties for everybody, get the government off everybody's backs. But um, at least in modern times, I think they've definitely gone more liberal and, and not in terms of classically liberal, but, you know, uh, big government, um, th th things like that. Cause you're right. I, I had my eye on a lot of the litigation around the country when the lockdowns were going on. And, and to my knowledge, the ACLU never got involved, you know, every once in a while they'll get a free speech issue. Right. But nowadays that I would not really describe them as a civil liberties organization. Mm. So let's get into your client's story. So I remember, um, your colleague and friend is also a mutual friend of ours as well, Alan Menendahl at Troy University reached out and he said that you are representing a small business that was um, that had to close its doors because of lockdown policies. And you're presenting evidence. Uh, now today, we, there's obviously copious evidence of this, but the lockdowns themselves did not really uh, change anything. It did not have a discernible effect on virus mitigation, preventing deaths. Uh, so tell us a little bit about your client. Uh, what did they go through and what are they seeking to achieve? Sure. So we're representing uh, two sets of clients in the suit. The, the original client that signed on with us, her name is Sarah Ann Riccio. She was a small business owner and she opened a wine tasting shop in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, U.S. News and World Report just rated Huntsville as the number one place in the United States to live. So it's mm. definitely getting on the map and catching more uh, national attention. But she ran, a, she opened a wine tasting shop in 2018. And the way that her business was structured was she would do things like sell wine bottles if people just wanted to come in, buy a bottle and leave. But about 70% of her gross profits came from the wine tasting experience inside the shop. So you get people to sit, you get people to try different types of wine, get them to um, enjoy other people's company. And so the, the dining experience really was the key part of how her business ran. So when COVID hit, um, obviously everybody freaked out about it. I think everybody was concerned and, and rightfully so, but immediately what, what happened immediately was that Alabama's state health officer, who to my knowledge is the only state health officer that is neither elected by the people nor appointed by, uh, the representatives of the people like the governor or something like that. 
in Alabama, the, 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 the medical association winds up electing the state health officer. And then it was just shocking to Alabamians how much power one official who was neither elected nor uh, appointed got to wield during the pan pandemic. Um, he followed the pattern of a lot of other states where almost immediately started issuing orders restricting the size of gatherings. Um, and, and for our client in particular, um, the, the, the key orders were banning dine-in experiences. So for our client, that took away 70% of her business right there. And businesses, especially small businesses, simply cannot sustain themselves based on 30% of what they were making before. So um, shortly after <clears throat> the order came out restricting dine-in gatherings, um, that, that's when Alabama issued its stay-at-home order. And unless you were within an enumerated exception of what constituted an essential business, you had to stay home. You couldn't go to work. And so she was completely uh, banned from, from working for about an entire month. And then after that, you know, I, I'm not going to try to make it out like Alabama's state health officer or governor were as, as harsh as people like Gavin Newsom or Andrew Cuomo. They weren't. But it goes to show that even among um, some of these officials who appeared more conservative, at least in the, uh, you know, compared to what was going on in other parts of the country, it was still bad for small business owners. Uh, when the wine shop was allowed to reopen, uh, she was subject to very strict uh, capacities on who could dine in. And again, that really hurt her business. Um, even before the, the lockdown orders came out, her customers were posting positive reviews online about all the efforts that she was making to try to keep things clean and sanitary during COVID because, you know, business owners for, for them, if they can't find a, a solution to get customers to come inside the shop, enjoy the wine tasting experience and, and keep it safe, they're going to go out of business. So they have a very strong incentive to do what's right for their customers. Um, but in this case, the government would not let her. So uh, she took out a PPP loan and she was able to pay her employees, but not herself. And because of the lockdown orders, she was paying her employees to stay home. Um, so for, for a period of about a month here, she's paying her employees to stay home, can't pay herself. The business is still in pretty bad shape. Well, like I said, when she was allowed to reopen, was subject to very severe dine-in restrictions. And it wasn't until January of 2021 that the government finally said, okay, um, restaurants and similar establishments can have full dining capacities if there are partitions that you put up between separate booths and, and tables. Well, the thing is, if you would have let small business owners uh, figure that out on their own, they could have figured that out within a week. It took the government about 10 months to figure out, oh, hey, this can work. There can be a win-win here if you just um, you know, separate the booths and, and, and the tables and have like plastic partitions up between them. Um, but unfortunately for our client, because of all the losses she sustained, uh, she was not able to recover from that and had to go out of business um, in December of 2021. Uh, she she lost a property interest in the property. She had to she had to sell it in order to avoid going into bankruptcy, um, and so that set us up for saying, okay, all the government's orders that came out were void because it did they did not involve the legislative branch. It was it was a separation of powers violation, and we also have an inverse condemnation claim now because all of these regulations were essentially a regulatory taking of property without just compensation. So mm -hmm. that is how we set up the suit for her. Um, our other client, it, it was very similar. He ran a outdoor mini golf um, and frozen yogurt shop. It was the only, uh, it was the only one in the Montgomery, Alabama area. Um, but he he likewise was just about 
as badly affected as, as our first client was, also had to go out of business, also had to sell his property in order to avoid bankruptcy. And so we're able to bring separation of powers and inverse condemnation claims on, on his behalf as well. Mm. So before we go into the legal theories that you're invoking, I'd like to ask, how common is this story that you just told? You know, small businesses um, who only had enough money in the bank account to sustain for so long, right? They're not large corporations. They don't have millions of dollars uh, to to basically bleed out for a while. You know, these, these small business owners who put their life's work into, you know, just one thing and don't have... Uh, that much money stored up. Like, how common is the story of people like that going out of business? I think it's pretty common. Um, I, I when, when when I was looking around for people that might want to join the suit, I talked to um, the Alabama Hospitality and Restaurant Association, uh, who, who was supposed to be sticking up for um, businesses like these that were, you know, small mom and pop places that were eventually run out of business. And, and the data that they gave me on how many businesses were affected, it was just, it, it was absolutely staggering. I mean, we, we talked about the loss of millions and millions and millions of dollars from people, like you said, who don't have um, big corporate bank accounts. They're just, you know, they, they have enough to sustain themselves and uh, pay their owners and their employees. And, and, and that's pretty much it. So th there were a lot of businesses in Alabama that wound up going out of business because of these orders. Um, because of that, I think there was a high interest in the state of, folks who wanted to see that situation made right. Uh, unfortunately, there were only a few that were willing to come forward and put their name down on a lawsuit. I think a lot of people are, are scared of that, but you know, even though representation is free and even though you know, you're not gonna lose anything, you can take a shot at it. Um, but we're, we're grateful for the clients that came forward and were willing to fight not only for themselves, but really for everybody else who suffered the same thing. Mm. So at AIER, we definitely we've talked for hours about at, here at AIER about you know how lockdowns don't work. We've dove into the empirical evidence. Uh, you know we we have plenty of content on that. I'm I'm curious to know what because you mentioned the John Hopkins study uh, on in your website's article. So I'm curious to know mm -hmm. like what information are you guys working off of, and how does that sort of play into your case? Yeah, the the Johns Hopkins study that came out, um, if I remember correctly, I think it was February 2022 was was very telling because all right you know if, if we go back to 2020 um we, everybody thought coronavirus was going to be the new black plague that mm -hmm. you know the hospital and of course the major objective at least in theory was to stop the hospitals from being overwhelmed you know we, we were hearing horror stories about people being lined up in the streets outside of hospitals and um not being able to get to them um but as johns hopkins analyze the data. And keep in mind, I mean, Johns Hopkins is not necessarily a conservative or libertarian organization, um, but they did a, a very, very uh, a thorough study. And I believe if I remember right, they concluded that at best, the, all the shutdowns, all the lockdowns only slowed down the spread of the coronavirus by about 10%. And, but on the other hand, they even conceded it was absolutely disastrous for the economy. So, you know, Johns, Johns Hopkins at the beginning of the pandemic, they, they were one of the organizations that everybody was looking to to try to figure out, okay, how can we get good data on how this thing works and what can we do to stop it? Um, and, and they're obviously very well respected. So coming out now and, and saying that at the end of the day, the lockdowns really didn't do anything material, uh, that, 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 that's a pretty good piece of information that we have in our corner. Mm. 
And so, and definitely here at AIER, we've done uh, similar studies, finding basically no real change. And we uh, Phil Magnus and Michael McCovey here at AIER, uh, they didn't look at the spread. They look at the effect on excess deaths, and they basically found that there's very little, if not any, uh, difference between areas that were locked down and areas that were not locked down and preventing excess deaths. So this is a pretty, I think this is a widely emerging consensus about whether or not lockdowns work or not. Uh, getting in. Getting into the the legal theories that you asserted. So the separation of powers one, I think that's a really important one. If uh, people remember the CDC uh, recently got its uh, airline mask mandate knocked off, uh, mostly based on a Florida court ruling that sort of had a, a similar theory about executive agencies and the amount of power they're allowed to wield, um, the amount of power that certain branches of governments are granted. So this is a very, uh, I think, a very common theme. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, I guess first, like a schoolhouse rock initiation of what is separation of powers, and then how does it play into how lockdowns work? Sure, absolutely. So, um, a separation of powers 101, you know, ever since even before the American founding era, up, in, up through now, um, people that have thought, you know, very deeply and very carefully about the role of government, like uh, Montesquieu and, and people like him, have thought at the end of the day, you have three types of government power. The first is legislative power which primarily is uh, the power to make the law, to decide what the law shall be. Um, so if you're going to have rules for society to live by, it, it really should be the people's representatives in the legislature that should get together, debate, try to figure out what's good for the country, and then come to a consensus on what the law is going to be moving forward. Um, executive power, which is vested in the state levels at the, the governor, at the federal level, level at the president, um, is not the power to make law, but the power to carry out the law. So uh, once you decide on what the law should be, you need to stop deliberating and you need to start acting. And that's where the executive branch comes in. The executive, the, the strength for them is that once it's been determined what the state is going to do, they can focus on getting it done. So you have speed, you have efficiency. Um, and, and a lot less deliberation like you did in the legislature. And in many ways, that's a good thing. Um, you know, for, for instance, if, if the police have to pull somebody over, um, you know, and, and determine that they've committed a crime, uh, while they sh certainly should be conscientious of, of constitutional and legal limitations, they, they should not spend hours deliberating, you know, every time they pull somebody over, uh, you know, but by that point, you know what the law is and your job right there is to figure out, okay, do, you know, do, do I write this guy up or do I not? That's it. Um, so, th so that is a good thing. But the problem here, it, my biggest concern, even back when COVID was spreading, was who decides? Who decides? And then obviously there's judicial power, which is uh, the power to judge cases and controversies arising um, under the law. Um, but, but going back to legislative and executive power here, you know, b b back when America seceded um, from from Britain or, or you know, uh, had, had the revolution more, more specifically in the British system, legislative power was divided between parliament, which was really supposed to uh, have more legislative power than the king, but and then the king himself. So the king had both the power, some power to make law and the power to execute it. And, and that was one thing that our, our founders really had a big problem with, especially by, by the time that he started imposing a lot of the grievances that we see listed in our Declaration of Independence. It was a very good example of how when you vest the power to make the law and the power to execute the law in the same person, things can get bad very, very fast. 
So uh, for for us here at the Alabama Center for, for Law and Liberty, as we were watching what happened with COVID, I, I found myself thinking, you know, I want to be fair. I'm a person who who thinks COVID is very serious and the Alabama Constitution is serious too. So even if the government stepped in it a little bit here and there as they figured out what to do, I could cut them some slack. But there are a few cardinal rules, a few very fundamental rules that you have to follow even in an emergency. And my thought was, okay, as we figure out how to respond, when do the people's representatives get to get together, debate how we're going to handle this, and then decide what the law is going to be? That never happened in Alabama, um, not even once. Uh, and, and the way that Alabama's law is set up, uh, we, we do have an emergency management act, like many other states do, that when a, a certain emergency hits, the governor and the executive branch can take immediate action. I think some of that is okay. But the problem in Alabama is our Emergency Management Act gives the executive branch pretty much sole authority to decide um, when an emergency exists. Once they declare that emergency exists, they have the power to do whatever they want. Uh, all laws that are contrary to the executive branch's orders are suspended, and um, they can only terminate when the, go when the governor says. Now, th there is one little check on that. We, we have a part-time legislature here in Alabama. They're only in session about three months of the year. So if the legislature happens to be in session, uh, they, they can vote to end it. But pretty much for nine months out of the year, the governor's power is completely unchecked. Um, so looking at this, we thought, look, th th there has to be more here. Th there have to be more checks and balances because otherwise, as soon as the governor declares an emergency, she can, she can convert our republic into a dictatorship, all right? It's benevolent dictatorship, maybe, but still a dictatorship nonetheless. When when you have that much power, so uh, we thought about it. Uh, the, the governor never called a special session of the legislature uh, the entire time the emergency existed to talk to, to deliberate what what we were going to do. Um, as a matter of fact, she was asked about that once, and her response was, "No, when you're in emergency, you don't consult a herd of turtles. You you make the decision and you know about what needs to be done." And while on the one hand, okay, maybe like immediately when COVID hit, uh, you can understand that. But after the emergency has gone on for a year and you're still saying there's an emergency, it's not an emergency anymore. So we, we, we figured, look, somebody has to try to take a shot at um, setting a precedent that uh, holds the government accountable, that, that gets the Alabama Supreme Court to recognize separation of powers still means something even during an emergency. And if anything like this ever happens again, you've got to do it the right way. Mm. So on that separation of powers point, essentially what you're saying is that this government certainly has the ability to react quickly to disasters, to crisis, and that's a good thing. However, if you want to shut down the entire state uh, for months on end, uh, one, I don't think there's a law on the books that says the government could do that. You can make one, of course, but uh, you can't just do what the health administrators in Alabama did, which is just decide on their own without consent from anybody. Uh, I'm sure, I don't even know if, uh, if you mentioned they consulted the, the rest of the executive branch. It was just this person's decision. Mm -hmm. that, that's just a no-go. That's not okay. And obviously, maybe you might approve of it. Maybe you might approve of the lockdowns. But what happens when it's about something you don't like, right? Maybe there's another problem in the future. You get the exact same problem. Yeah, exactly. You know, we, we know in hindsight now that um, as a matter of policy, those decisions were wrong because as Johns Hopkins studies show, uh, it, it did, all of that did very little to slow the spread of COVID. So we know that was bad policy. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try to sit here and, and beat up on our state health administrator and, or our governor who 
um, eventually started approving um, and adopting the, the health officer's orders as her own. Uh, I'm not going to beat up on them by, by calling them, you know, tyrants or evil. I, I don't, I don't think they were, they were evil. I think they just, you know, they, they were trying to legitimately do the best they could to save lives. But the problem is when you don't follow the separation of powers doctrine, stuff like this can happen. But to your point, what happens in the future? Because everybody watching how the COVID pandemic was handled saw that in, in many states, especially in Alabama, the executive branch could get away with doing whatever it wanted under the guise of having emergency powers. So what happens either when, you know, you have the same administration and a uh, another emergency comes up, or what happens if you get a less scrupulous executive that comes in in the future who is is dying for an opportunity to act in a tyrannical fashion or maybe in a, a morally evil fashion and get away with doing some really bad things? If you don't set a precedent right now where we, we call the separation of powers violation for what it is, then we blow open the door to to very bad abuses of power in the future. And that's that's not something that can happen on our watch. Mm. And I've, I've heard a lot of people who are skeptical of basically the entire premise of the separation of powers. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, like, why are you complaining? It's a public health measure. Like, stop, you know, stop getting in the way. I, I've heard on both sides, you know, crazy cra ideas about how we can use the executive without, you know, without the consent of the legislature, you know, the people on the left might say, we're, you know, we are in a quote unquote climate crisis and therefore mm -hmm. uh, we need to take drastic action, you know, unauthorized action um, that could potentially save our country. So there's the threat on the left. I've been to enough Federalist Society conferences to know that some people, in fact, very famous people have meant, have made, have posited that, you know, woke corporations are slowly undermining the foundation of our country and therefore we need to break them up right now right even though it's not authorized yeah. so it it goes both ways right it's not Agreed. just the you know the the COVID skeptics or what have the anti-vaxxers we'll name whatever term you want to use it's not the anti-public health people it's people who genuinely care about not letting the republic turn into a dictatorship either by the left or the right yeah i, I agree with you completely i mean you know uh, i think a lot of the times people that have turned out to be tyrants of history. Um, maybe it started off doing what they thought was good and they had a very reasonable case for it, but the problem was they just usurped power during that process. And then just with human nature being what it is, um, it takes a person of, of almost unimpeachable moral character to be able to just voluntarily give power back once the emergency is over. Um, gosh, you know, George Washington, founder of our country, even though, you know, he didn't have emergency powers, so to speak. I mean, you know, he, he walked away from the presidency after two terms because he, he realized this could be very bad for the country if, you know, the, the chief executive just keeps coming back to power and eventually winds up looking more like a king. So he walked away. Uh, but I think very few people, e even good people, um, have the character to be able to do that because, you know, um, how, how does, how does uh, Lord Acton's saying go? Um, absolute power corrupts absolutely. So... Uh, regardless of your political point of view, whether you're more left or right, and even if you think it's it's somebody who's in your corner that starts off using emergency powers for a very good thing, it can evolve, it can evolve into something very bad very quickly, and we just need to not go there. Mm. So I'd like to touch on the second aspect of your legal theory, which I guess is the one that I guess really matters in this case, and that's the Fifth Amendment takings clause. That's the one that allows you uh, to retrieve some sort of compensation from the government. So can you... Again, take us through the schoolhouse rock interpretation of 
What is the Fifth Amendment, Fifth Amendment takings clause and how does it play into your lawsuit? Sure. Excellent question. Um, so the, the, the concept that yeah, you're, you're talking about is eminent domain. And it, it's long been presumed, both at the federal and the state level, that, yes, sometimes the government needs to be able to take private property for public use. Um, if, if you go all the way back to, to Grotius, who I think was a, you know, one of the guys that was the original uh, proponents of this view, his, his underlying theory was very scary. He thought that at the end of the day, all property really belonged to the states and the state was just taken back what it was. Uh, fortunately, in the Anglo-American tradition, we recognize that people have property rights. Um, and so we, we, we took out a lot of the underlying um, uh, potential for abuse there. But, you know, if the government has to come along and eventually wind up taking um, your property for the good of the public, it has to be number one for public use. And number two, they have to pay you just compensation. They can't just come away, they come along, take your property and say, well, I'm sorry, it stinks for you, but this is your gift to society. Um, we'll, we'll send you uh, thoughts and prayers as you go through bankruptcy, but that's all we're going to do for you. No, you, you actually have to pay the people if you deprive them of their property rights. So... That, that's what eminent domain is. Uh, the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which applies to the states of the 14th, um, has that requirement. If the government takes your pro property for public use, they have to give you just compensation. And a lot of state constitutions, including Alabama's, have uh, a very similar rule. So uh, that, that's what uh, eminent domain is. And, and it's called inverse condemnation when the government takes your property for public use but does not give you just compensation for it. And it's pretty well established everywhere that if the government does, you can sue and you can wind up getting the just compensation that they should have provided you in the first place. So, all right, um, here, you know, both of our clients eventually lost their property because of uh, the government's actions. And, and there is a form of takings that the U.S. Supreme Court has recognized called regulatory takings. They, uh, the, the court realized, especially because property is not just your land or your house, but your rights concerning those things. That's fundamentally what property is. It is possible for the government to deprive you of your property rights through regulation rather than physically coming and seizing your house or, 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 or your land. Um, and so that's what we're arguing happened here. Our clients lost their property rights because of the government's regulations. It was a regulatory taking. Now, why is that important for this case? Well, it, in short, um, it's... <laughs> It's a lot easier to stop when you're launching a lawsuit against the government. It is a lot easier to stop them from doing something that they're currently doing, which is unconstitutional, than it is to make them pay for an unconstitutional action that they did in the past. Um, if you're trying to stop the government from, you know, doing something that it's currently doing that's wrong, you can get an injunction where a court steps in and says, all right, you have to stop. And if you don't, you know, you're going to be held in contempt. Um if you're suing to get your money back, though, after everything is over, then a lot of the times, at least at the state level, there are certain rules about state immunity that, that bar those kind of lawsuits. Um, unfortunately, it's right there in Alabama's Constitution. Article 1, Section 14 says the state of Alabama shall never be made a defendant in a court proceeding. So um, I, I think maybe at the federal level, some of the uh, immunity rules that we have have been made up by the courts, but in Alabama, it's actually right there in the Constitution, so you can't argue with the fact it is law. Um, so if, if that's the case, you know, the the, uh, the the people listening to this podcast right now are wondering, well, gosh, if that's the case, then is there any way through it? Yes, because one of the very few exceptions 
to the state immunity doctrine is an inverse condemnation claim. Um, because if the government deprived you of your property without just compensation, what other way do you have to get what you deserve unless you sue them and make them pay the money back? So that's why, uh, you know, reading the eminent domain and the state immunity uh, parts of the state constitution together to, to form a harmonious rule, that, that's the way the courts have said, okay, inverse condemnation claims are one of the several exceptions that we're going to recognize state immunity. So here, um, that really, the, the, the regulatory takings claim really is the key for how we're going to get into court, how we're going to get past the state immunity doctrines, and how we're going to allow the courts to get to the separation of powers problem. Um, you know, if you think about it, like trying to break into a house, uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of like if you're going to successfully break in, um, you, you can't it's a case where maybe the front door is well guarded, all the windows are well guarded. So you got to find something creative, like you got to, you know, slide down the chimney or, you know, come up from uh, mm. underneath or something like that. that that's kind of like the equivalent of what's happening in this lawsuit. So um, the, the regulatory taking uh, inverse condemnation claim is kind of that narrow way that we're breaking into the house. And then once we're there, we're, we're going to get what we're really after, which is, um, uh, getting the courts to recognize that there was a separation of powers problem that could never happen again. Mm. So the, when, when you're bringing those two together in your lawsuit, separation of powers, as well as the takings claim, uh, are, do both of them, are both of them needed to basically converge to get compensation or are they both independent claims? One's just trying to stop the government from doing this ever again. The other one's just trying to get compensation. Yeah, so, so technically they, they can stand as independent claims. I think they're interrelated because they arise from the same set of facts. And so because of that, you have the opportunity to go after both of them. Now, if by the time this gets to the Alabama Supreme Court, um, one thing that they could say is they, they could say, well, you know, uh, because of the, the doctrine of, you know, constitutional avoidance, we're going to decide as little as possible. Uh, we're, we're going to... Uh, we're going to say that you have a valid regulatory taking claim. We're going to give um, the property owners just compensation, and then we're not going to say anymore. They could do that, but they could also go one step further and say the reason why these regulatory takings happened is because the, the executive branch violated the separation of powers doctrine. Here's how they did it. Here's why. Here's where the line is so that this never happens again in the future. And that's really what we're going to be pushing for. So I guess I'd like to play devil's advocate and I guess probe your argument for a little bit. Uh, do you, I, I believe I'm sure the state will likely invoke uh, the police power. They'll say that um, this, there's a rational basis for this, even though it may not have, may, even though the evidence says otherwise today at the time, you know, it was clearly it's definitely rational. And under the ration, under the police power, we're not necessarily we don't really need to compensate anybody. It's a public health measure. You know, we're saving lives. Uh, so what do you think the chances are of the state being able to basically invoke that argument and succeed on it? Well, yeah, they, they've, they, they, that's an um, excellent question. They already have invoked it. The, the motion to dismiss just came in, and sure enough, those are some of the arguments that they raised. So they're on the table. Uh, frankly, if I were in the attorney general's office defending the state, that's exactly what I would argue, too. So there's there's no surprise there. Um where the fight is really going to have to go down is where do you draw the line between police powers in domain cases? So uh, both of us are arguing very general principles at the start. And what we're going to have to do is we're going to have to dive into the precedents hard. And another thing I'm going to be doing um, is I'm going to be trying to make an original 
case under the eminent domain provision of the Alabama Constitution, uh, saying that when Alabama's Constitution was framed in 1901, the framers would have understood cases like this to be more of a um, regulatory taking than, uh, th than a valid exercise of police powers. And the second argument uh, for that is, is one of the few ways that you can beat the rational basis test is if you can show that the government's actions were arbitrary or capricious. And if you do that, you know, if, if it's arbitrary, then by definition, it's not rational. Um, so uh, the, probably the, and, and I will concede that is an uphill climb because with rational basis review, the government's actions are presumed valid and you have to be the one that proves that there wasn't. Um, but one of the things that we're going to hit on is the distinction between essential and non-essential businesses. Um, because even Alabama's governor, in hindsight, came out and admitted that that was a mistake. It was a mistake to, you know, classify some businesses as essential, uh, some as not. Um, and, and you really have to dive into the facts here because what what happened in in practice was the the small mom and pop shops got shut down, whereas the big box competitors that were selling the exact same products got to stay open. So if your objective is really to slow the spread, that means you're, you're trying to spread out how people are going about going out and getting, you know, goods and services. But if you drive them all to the same place or to a uh, very limited number of places, you're probably going to be more contact. They're going to spread it more. And so at the end of the day, uh, the classification between essential and non-essential businesses was arbitrary and capricious. So, um, of course, just like everything else, the devil is in the details. Um, I think, you know, what, what, what I'll concede is certainly there's a plausible argument on the other side. I definitely think we have one too. So we're going to have to fight it out and see what the court believes. But anyway, so both between as an originalist matter, trying to frame this more as a uh, regulatory taking um, and hitting back with the arbitrary capricious to fight off the rational basis uh, challenge. The, the, those are the two rebuttals that we're going to have. Mm. So if it's possible that, uh, let's say the courts deems that the originalist um, understanding is not really relevant, uh, but you are correct that it was not rational. And a number of courts have already uh, concluded that many lockdown policies are not rational. And I think it, it's, it's accelerating given that, uh, I guess, the, the fear, right? It's two years, mm -hmm. two years is enough time to start just calming down, right? Uh, so the, the fear about the virus is gone. People are, the courts starting to look at these policies a little bit more skeptically. So what happens if, let's say, the court rejects the, the claim that it's a take, it's a regulatory taking, but it's uh, that it is the police power, but the police power is wrong to use, right? There's no rational basis. What happens then? Well, if that's the case, then I think we win um, because uh, under constitutional challenges, especially Fifth Amendment uh, takings, them if rational basis is uh, the standard, then you know the government's actions can only be upheld if there's a rational basis. Uh, or, or more specifically, a rational relationship to a uh, legitimate state interest. But here, if the government, if I can show that the government didn't have it, then it's unconstitutional and we win. So mm. um, we're, we're, we're certainly going to be you know, pushing for that. And uh, we hope that the Alabama Supreme Court agrees. So if it's unconstitutional, um, but not a regulatory, let's say like the court deems it, it's not a regulatory taking, but it is a misuse of police power. Your client is still entitled to compensation or you just win on the constitutional argument, but not the compensation argument. Yeah, that, that, that's an excellent question. So, um, uh, all right, after hearing that, I'm, I'm thinking through this a little, a little differently. Um, if, if you can show that the government's actually 
violate the, the rational relationship test, usually that's a 14th Amendment argument. And, you know, the remedy would be, you know, some kind of compensatory damages if you, mm. you know, if, if you can do the math and show this is what they, uh, they suffered for it. So um, I would think that regardless of whether you frame it as, um, a, you know, uh, taking without just compensation or, you know, arbitrary and capricious government action that uh, violates uh, the 14th Amendment, I think the result is the same in that mm. when you prove your damages, it's, it, you, we're looking to make our clients whole for what they lost. And I think either way you get that. Mm. So, and I'm assuming there might be some nuances about if it's a regulatory taking, there might be a certain amount awarded. If it's more like a, a punishment, a slap on the wrist for the government for saying, oh, you did something wrong, oh, yeah. the, the award's slightly different. But either way, your client's going to get something uh, if you win that, if you win on either theory. Yeah, agreed. You know, when, when we asked for relief, um, the, the primary relief that we asked for was uh, compensatory damages, uh, whether in the form of, you know, maybe just under a pure 14th Amendment analysis looking at, um, you know, you harm me, here's how much you harm me and I want it back, or, you know, through uh, the, 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 you know, the value of the property that they lost, you know, e either way, what the objective is to uh, make the client whole. Uh, but we did fall back and ask for other forms of relief. We asked for nominal damages, which I'm sure you know what that means for listeners who don't know. Uh, it, it's really more like what you were talking about, where uh, maybe the court refuses to make the government pay up for everything that they did, but they do give them a slap on the wrist and they award you know some amount of money for um, uh, uh, the, the, the violation of constitutional rights. A lot of the times it's like a dollar, you know, mm. or, or something, something like that. But then the question, the question becomes, well, you know, why do you even award that? And at the end of the day, it has to come down to the fact that even though we can't put a dollar amount on it, you know, it's still an acknowledgement that, yes, at the end of the day, your constitutional rights were violated um, and we're going to rule against the government. We're going to make them pay something. And through this, we're going to set a precedent that you can't do that again. Um, both of my clients, too, they, you know, I, I was I was honest with them when we started this suit. I said, listen, you know, if we sue for you, the other side is probably going to raise uh, a state immunity argument. It's a high hill to climb. Now, I'm willing to climb it. I am. But you have to, you know, keep in mind that it's it's going to be tough to get there. So, you know, I can't promise you a particular outcome. I mean, you know, you always say that when you bring a client in, but it was especially important in this case. And they and, and they replied, you know what, that's okay, because to me, what matters even more than getting made whole is holding the government accountable for what it did. And, you know, that both of them said, I, we, we felt uh, very lucky to avoid bankruptcy, but we know many of our friends that were similarly situated who weren't so lucky. So um, for us, it's very important that we do what we can to hold the government accountable. And even if we don't get all our money back, but we get a win, um, through some other means, we're going to be happy. Mm. I mean, that's, that's certainly a very inspiring message and very, um, I guess, very, this was the word, very thoughtful of your clients as well as to really care about not just themselves, but the broader system of civil liberties, as well as basically kind of uh, standing up on behalf of all their, their fellow businessmen and women who were uh, harmed more or less by lockdowns as well. Um, so I guess a last question as we are coming up on time, uh, to the people who are listening to this and are saying, okay, like this sounds, I mean, the legal art, the legal theory sounds fine. This is all, it's all fine and dandy. Uh, but at the end of the day, like, 
don't you think that this is getting in the way of public health? You know, we're going to have more crises like this. We can't have uh, these constitutional limits. These these antiquated, you know, doctrines are are a product of a different time. You know, we're more, uh, I guess, something Fauci might say, you know, we're a more scientifically mm-hmm. advanced world. We're more interconnected, right? It's not just once something that happens in China can easily come over here and spread, you know, like wildfire. Uh, what would you say to those people who are more skeptical of, these doctrines that do allow us to extract compensation, that do allow us to issue injunctions against our government. Uh, what is your response uh, to that that retort? Hmm. Well, I think at the end of the day, um, the, the, the critical question is, does the rule of law in a Republican system of government matter to you? I think for a lot of people who think that um, the government ought to be able to have the power to act quickly, uh, do whatever it feels that it needs to be done. Um, you know, they, they, I think they have a, a kind of a different worldview than I do. Um, I think they believe deep down that, uh, number one, people are naturally good and they just do bad things because of bad circumstances. Um, and then because of that, if we have some kind of institute that can fix all the bad circumstances, uh, people won't do bad things anymore. And so if you have that kind of setup, it makes a lot of sense to give the government a lot of consolidated power to be able to fix everything. I, I really think that was uh, the, you know, the, the heartbeat of progressivism in the progressive era and, and continues to be to this day. For me, I look at it and I say, yes, well, well, tough circumstances can certainly drive people to do bad things. At the end of the day, uh, people choose. P- people choose what they're going to do. And, and the second too, look, I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm a Christian and my faith informs me. And I, you know, I, I think I've seen enough in life to see it to, to show that while not necessarily, um, everything that everybody does is bad. Um, people are, people are not necessarily, uh, naturally good. Um, that, I think there is, uh, an inherent human nature that, 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 that is, is tempted to do things like abuse power and to put, personal interests ahead of the interests of everybody else. And therefore, when you have a government where there's a lot of power consolidated in one person uh, or, or a very small set of people without many checks and balances, at the end of the day, they're going to have a temptation to serve themselves or what they think is good rather than objectively serving the good and the general interests um, as, as a whole. I think history corroborates that. It's certainly what our Founders believed, if anybody's skeptical about that, go back, read Federalist 51. Madison gives a masterful discussion of that. So uh, for me, it's because I do not trust power consolidated into the hands of people um, where it's very easy for them to make unchecked decisions. I value our republic. I value the rule of law. I value our constitution. And a lot of the atrocities you know, committed by dictators over the 20th century shows how badly things can go when one person can call all the shots and has unbridled discretion to do what they think is good. And I've also, I guess I'd like to add that, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, that's uh, my area of study at AIER, you know, they're constantly trying to tell us that this is the failings of liberal democracy. They can't control a virus because of their checks and balances. And that might have been slightly true at the beginning, but look what's going on in China today, right? The city of Shanghai mm-hmm. has been on lockdown for weeks on end. People are, you know, being locked locked in their rooms. There's police pulling people uh, pulling people out, violating their civil liberties. And let's not get. And then we can talk for hours about you know living in China on a normal day, and mind not nevertheless a pandemic. 
And so, and I guess the, the success of the liberal democratic world in developing vaccines and emerging from the virus, from the pandemic, whereas China's continued to stay locked down is, I guess, almost a refutation of that original claim uh, that our systems of checks and balances, our liberal democracy, our freedoms uh, were a hindrance and not an asset when it comes to dealing with pandemics or any sort of crisis. I think that's a, certainly a note I'd like to add. Uh, but Matthew Clark, thank you Great. so much. Uh, for joining us on the show today. And thank you so much for the work that you're doing uh, for your clients, as well as for our American system of government. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ethan. It's been an honor to be with you. Thank you so much for uh, the work that AIER is doing uh, likewise. And um, I'm going to, I'm really going to have to check out a lot of the, um, uh, the resources that you mentioned during this podcast. I'm, I'm uh, all about trying to gather as much information as I can to help the client. Sounds like you guys have done a lot of good work and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look it up and dive into it. So thank you for what you're doing, too. And, of course, we encourage our audience and our viewers to also do the same and look at our resources. Um, and I, I guess we can bring your attention to uh, two books that I, I have. There's um, This one's particularly useful, uh, Coronavirus and Disease Modeling. It's edited by uh, Pete Earle, who's a fellow here at AIER. But it's basically uh, just a huge compilation of articles and studies um, that – really go into the faulty, the, the failures and faults of the current the, the models and the studies that were used to justify uh, lockdowns. And there's also uh, a similar book, Coronavirus and Here in Ripes, which talks more about the law, more about the philosophy. It's also a compilation of articles. Um, if you like what you heard today, make sure to follow AIER on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Spotify, as well as check out our website at AIER.org. If you really liked, if you really liked what you heard today and you want to support more cutting edge research and activism, uh, make sure to uh, become a donor. All the information and more can be found at AIER.org. And I guess I might as well give another shout out to the, to the Alabama Center for Law and Liberty. If you want to support more attorneys like Matt, uh, make sure to become a donor over there. I'm sure uh, they have their own website. If you want, I guess if you want to give a little shout out where our viewers can learn a little bit more about your center. Well, thank you, Ethan. Yes. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, please check out AlabamaLawAndLiberty.org. All that's spelled out. Uh, we are um, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram as well under uh, Law and Liberty AL. So you can find us on social media that way or just go uh, right to the website. So please yeah, check it out. And if you like what you're doing, we would greatly uh, appreciate any uh, donations or any generosity that you'd be inclined to give. So thank you. Of course. And to our audience again, thank you for watching. This has been the AIER Standard.